Welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. Happy New Year! Happy New Year, it's official PJ. We are in our uh, third year of operation now. What? Well, no, sorry. I mean, that's an oversimplification. We've been doing this for what like 18 months or something like that yeah no oh yeah but we we started it in 2020 didn't we and then we've done 2021 and we're recording this on the 1st of january 2022 yeah it's official and 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 i kudos to you pj because you know this is probably the closest we've been to <laughs> is it the closest <laughs> we've been to like recording an episode before it actually comes out I, I think we've pretty... done another one like the, the same weekend because yeah. it's Saturday and it's due out in two days' time. So I'd better send it to John to edit this like as soon as we finish recording. I, d- I think it's like I I appreciate your honesty because listeners, PJ kept us honest because I I kind of knew it was coming up, but I almost didn't want to say anything. And I was like, well, if PJ doesn't say anything, and, I, and I'm sorry, I, sh- I feel bad saying it out loud, but I'm like, <laughs> I'm betraying the listeners. But I was like, would they hate us if we? If we if we took Christmas off, but I think no, we're here, PJ. Had we not already skipped a week, a few episodes back, yeah, we've got to um, earn that trust back, haven't we? Yeah, I, I would have sort of gone. It's Christmas, let's. But because we did, I felt like we can't do it again so soon. No, and we committed to this yesterday. Was it yesterday? Yeah, it was yesterday. <laughs> yeah, we're bad. Sorry, you're getting all the dirty laundry. Um, but uh, since then. Uh, I went to uh, uh, my co-host on a different podcast's house for New Year's Eve. Which podcast, we... John? Give it a plug. Uh, it's a show called Hate uh, PJ, which will be recording our hundredth episode live next what? week, which is weird. Um, and uh, yeah, so we had a very genteel middle-aged evening, and then it was somehow agreed at that at that gathering that we would um, run five k in the morning. <laughs> uh, which I have since done. So um, there was a time when going like, oh yeah, let's record, let's record a JLA cast tomorrow at, at two p.m. Oh yeah, two p.m. gives you tons of time. And now I'm like, God, it's like I'm, I'm glad I'm sitting down actually because my legs are killing me. <laughs> oh, I just went for a little walk this morning, but uh, had a coffee. It was lovely. You're generally, uh, you do run, don't you, PJ? You, I do run. A- I haven't for a little while. Um, December got hectic so runs were sort of put on the back burner and then uh just before christmas my wife tested positive for covid so uh, yeah. we haven't left the house well today this morning was the first time we've left the house for about 11 days <laughs> when you opened the door was it just like this wave of hot air 
Hot. It was so <laughs> weird being outside again. I mean, it wasn't really cold out there. We we both ended up taking our jackets off and everything, but just being outside, getting fresh air, and and walking about. We walked about three kilometers uh, to get the coffee, three kilometers home. But it was so strange being after. You, you sort of don't realize how weird it's going to be when you've been inside for that long. I mean, I kept testing negative, but because my wife was positive, we figured we'd both. You know, I didn't want to risk going out and infecting anyone. So. But yeah, so going outside for the first time today was absolutely glorious. It's grey, it's dull, it's overcast. It's it's not the most beautiful day in the world, but my God, it's the best fresh air I've ever had. I, uh, I'm very lucky. I've only had to isolate once, and that was back in the summer. And it was, I'd had a, I'd been pinged mm. on the app. So I'd, I was tested negative the whole time, but I'd been near someone who had. And at the time, it was like a two-week the rules have changed so many times, but at the yeah. time it was a two-week isolation, and I'm generally like quite happy not going out and interacting with the world. But I think by day ten, I was like, "God, I want to leave." Yeah, like I want to, I want to do anything. I'm glad it was sunny because it was a good thing it was sunny because I could at least garden. But <laughs> yeah, it's God, I was it's happy to get out. Not so much the human interaction because. These days, with everyone being online, I still feel like I was talking to all my friends and family all the time. Yeah. But it's just the going outside properly and just going for a little walk around, getting fresh air, seeing a slightly different view to the one out your window. Well, I, mean, I guess the, the, um, the silver lining might be is that if you've been trapped inside for a month, a um, lot of TV... lot of lot of pop culture to consume. Yes. Yeah, we have... Uh, watched a lot of tv shows couple of films i have been catching up on superman and lois now that that's being shown on bbc one on a saturday evening and i have to say oh, i it? really like it <clears throat> oh my god they're showing it on british standard television yeah bbc one saturday evenings it's that prime slot it's the, it's the 90s um new adventures of superman yes hold on a second slot I, lois and clark yeah i'm getting the most powerful burst of nostalgia here like at that bizarre time in the 90s where for mo- God, we sound so rural. Yeah, for most British people, getting like American TV and getting anything colourful and comic related was almost impossible. And then just this glorious moment where of like the four channels we had in the UK, there was just a period where like, yeah, one of them was showing a Superman TV show. I'd forgotten about that. A Superman TV show that I will say I don't think really holds up. I don't think if you're in America, Lois and Clark, if you're in the UK, it was just called New Adventures of Superman, I think. But I don't think it holds up particularly well. I've never thought Dean Cain was a particularly good Superman, and he's a very problematic individual these days anyway. Um, but oh. yeah, back back in the day, f- fully enjoyed it. But Superman and Lois now, I think, is great. I think it captures the character of Superman really well. And I will go as far as to say Elizabeth Tulloch is, the, is my personal favourite live-action Lois Lane ever. She's really good in that part. Well, it's weird, isn't it? Because, like, you, you talk about, like, the original... And, and we'll get back... I want to hear more about the new series, but just thinking back to the original, like, growing up, I think, like, Dean Cain was kind of Superman to me. Hmm. And uh, in that weird kind of, like... Um, I was young, but in that weird kind of, like... It was very 90s. Yes. You know, uh, but I was like... I, and the costume was colourful. I'll give him that. Yeah. But, like... I still cannot see Terry Hatcher and not think of her as Lois Lane. She was a very good Lois, to be fair to her. She was very good. Mm. 
But tell me more about this new one, PJ. Is it in one of the various shared universes that are currently on TV? Yeah, it's part of the Arrowverse. Uh, it's the same Superman who appeared in Supergirl and was in then the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover, Tyler Hoechlin, who right. plays the character. And he is really, really good. He's a brilliant Superman. He he has the uh, the kindness. He's He's, you know, it's not the Zack Snyder grimdark. It's the proper <laughs> heroic, kind, compassionate Superman that we all know and love. And... Yeah, he's just brilliant in the role. He's so likable and but also when he is you know, it's Superman. So you know for a fact that if something's going on and you're on his bad side, it has a bad place to be. So I'm I'm I must confess I've never watched any of the Arrowverse associated shows. Uh and I know obviously they did Crisis on Infinite Earths. Mm. So how does it work? Is it um is Superman in literally the same universe as Green Arrow, or is it like he's in the universe next door and they can call if they need him, sort of thing? As of Crisis, same universe. Oh, did they? Oh, okay. They they did that, did they? They yeah, they did. Because yeah. uh, Green Arrow, Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, they were all in one universe, and then Supergirl was in her own universe because the show started on a different network. But then they'd cross over th- between universes. But then Crisis at the end of it, the universes merged. So how, for lack of a better word, how super do they go? Because I know um, the New Adventures of Lois and Clark was very much like, this is a uh, Ali McBeal-esque kind of light comedic drama uh, with occasional superhero moments. And there weren't many like flat out supervillains in costumes and stuff. This is fairly similar in that regard. The setup is Superman and Lois and their two teenage sons, Jonathan and Jordan, have moved back to Smallville because Jordan is showing signs of having powers and they need to try and get him to control them and and work on him developing them and and make sure that they're safe. Um, You do have running threads. There's uh, Morgan Edge. Obviously, comic fans will know that character is, is sort of lurking in the background. And there's a armored villain who is a luthor from a parallel universe who's flying around as well making trouble um but the the focus of the show is the relationship between lois and clark and their kids so jonathan kent is is quite an established part of current dc continuity now yeah in the comics do they have a second child jordan uh, not that I'm aware of, but I'm not that up to date mm. with the comics. That was actually a byproduct of Crisis. At the beginning of Crisis, they had a baby son. And then at the end of Crisis, it was like suddenly they had twins. So when the universe changed, Superman and Lois had two twin boys. And this show is now those boys are teenagers. So I think that was a Crisis change that has no. then they've used as the launch pad for this show. And as I understand it, in the current DC continuity the appearance of well the fact that Lois and Clark have a son is kind of the reaction soft retcon to the new 52 isn't it because didn't they say that like the original Superman never actually went away and him and Lois and their son had actually been living in like semi-retirement on the moon or something like that yeah exactly and then I think new 52 Superman actually died and so original or well pre flashpoint superman but post crisis superman and lois uh, came back and he took up the mantle of superman again i think 
it's a yeah. I mean, only in comics. Although, yeah. although, frankly, now in TV and cinema, apparently, apparently, because, because I, it's like because uh, side side point. But um, Lucy and I have finally started watching the Marvel series on Disney Plus. Mm. We'd resisted for a very long time, not because of obviously. You know, hey, we're doing a comics podcast, everybody. Obviously, I'm kind of invested, but certainly after Endgame, I think I needed a bit of a break, a bit of distance. That's fair. And, and it felt like maybe a bit of a commitment. You know, I didn't want to have to, I don't know, spend hours of my life watching these things, even though I heard they were really good. Uh, but we finally bit, bit the bullet and we watched all of WandaVision in one night, which was great. <laughs> and uh, we are three episodes into loki and honestly like if you'd on the one hand loki i think is probably one of the most beautiful beautifully shot yeah. executed directed and written things i've seen in a while i think it is better than a lot of the movies just in terms of pure cinematography it looks stunning um and 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 yeah i just i cannot frankly i couldn't believe when they a brought vision into the movies originally yeah i, I never thought i'd live to see vision in a movie then they did Ant-Man, and I was like, well, well Teenage John is very happy, because they were like my two favourite Avengers. And and now, like, can you believe, like, we're at a point where the, the TV series and, and the movies are frankly as convoluted and complex as the comics. It's wild. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they really are. And the newer movies, because most of, you know, most of the newer movies, so Shang-Chi and Eternals, obviously deal with new characters to the the MCU. So there's a it's a little less of the join the dots connections. But then when you look at Black Widow and uh the new Spider Man film, good God they can get granular with some of the things they've brought in and but I think Loki is the biggest flex like bringing in the, the time variance authority who Well and, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um for me, I'm looking at Loki. Hello, everyone. This is a DC themed podcast, um, but I'm I'm watching Loki on Disney Plus, and all I can see is Avengers Forever by Kurt Busiek yes. and Carlos uh, Pacheco. I'm probably pronouncing that horribly wrong. I do apologize. Um, so I'm th- I'm you know I'm just thinking Kurt Busiek, Kurt Busiek, he, the the kind of secret star of this podcast. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there was a huge influence from Avengers Forever on on Loki. Um, and I think it's it's from what I've heard about where the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going next. I think Avengers Forever is going to be a huge touch point for the entirety of, of Phase Four. Wow, it's fu- it's so funny, isn't it? I know this is a this is a tale as old as time, but you can almost guarantee that Kurt Busiek has not been involved in those discussions. No, I don't think he has. I'm I'm not entirely sure he'd want to be. Um, I don't know if he he doesn't really seem to do much for Marvel anymore these days. I think he sort of feels like he's done with that and likes to just work on his own stuff, you know, Astro City and things like that. But I don't know if, but I doubt they've reached out. I don't think they really reach out to many of the actual writers and artists. They just give them a little special thanks in the credits normally at the end, don't they? And I I don't know, it's it's weird, isn't it? Because ultimately it is... It, frankly, it is a product, it's an IP which is owned by Marvel. And I, I know um, everybody was hired on a work-for-hire thing, and there's a, you know, there's maybe a bigger discussion to be had around when does 
a corporation the size of Marvel and Disney's responsibility to a creator end? I mean, mm-hmm. legally, the answer is the moment they signed the contract and finished the work. Um, I don't know. Ethically, morally, there's a bigger question around that. But it, I, I mean, purely from an observational point of view, it must be very surreal to be any creator who's worked on one of these series. And, you know, regardless of whether you feel you're owed more or not, it must be very weird to to look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe and go like, that's based on my idea. Yeah, that's well, there's weird. The, the big one over that was Hawkeye recently, which was great. I think Hawkeye was brilliant. Might be my favorite of the Disney Plus show so far. But it owed so much to the fraction um, and uh, uh, Aja. Yes, Aja. Yeah, Aja. Yeah. Fraction and Aja. Their run on the comic, and their names are obviously there in the credits. But you, they haven't particularly been compensated or anything for it. It's just, but you know, that's that's working for Marvel, isn't it? Yeah. That's that's the price you pay for stepping into the Palace of Dreams or whatever. I don't know <laughs> the bullpen. Um. The, the Hawkeye thing, and we're going to get there and watch it, but the Hawkeye thing is such a, a mind-bender because, you know, you, you see those kind of slightly insufferable kind of social media posts where some some news, um, some pop culture outlet will do, like, uh, uh, some fluff piece on it and go, like, the quintessential Hawkeye story has now been adapted for Disney, you know, for TV. But the, how do you... How do you unravel that knot? Because you say that, like, Hawkeye was a very long-standing Avenger, maybe didn't have wider appeal, was a popular character. Then, in the early 2000s, Marvel does a thing called the Ultimates, which is a reimagining that puts Hawkeye on the team, changes his look, makes him a bit more boring, perhaps. The Avengers adapts that into film, which gives Hawkeye a new look again. And then off the back of the success of the Avengers... Uh, two acclaimed creators make a miniseries for Marvel, which is taking the original character but putting some of the movie's spin on him mm-hmm. to reimagine him. And now, a few years later, the same multimedia conglomerate takes that story and adapts it back into television. It's, it's a weird cycle, isn't it? It's it very really weird. Is. It really is. But I wouldn't... Yeah, I, the, the Fraction Arger series, it is brilliant. I love it. I wouldn't say it was my favourite Hawkeye story, though. What is your favourite Hawkeye story? Probably uh, <laughs> Kurt Busiek's Avengers and Thunderbolts runs in tandem oh, and what he yeah. did with the character there. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because I, I, that was pretty much like... I, I, we've talked about it before, but like I, I read the old black and white Avengers uh, reprints, the essential reprints, and mm. I liked Hawkeye from the 60s. Obviously, he was a bit of a dick, but he was kind of a lovable dick. Um, but yeah, but the Busick take on the character, that was basically my Hawkeye, like old um, pointy-horned, you know, purple Hawkeye. Yeah, and when Busick had him leave the Avengers and then start leading the Thunderbolts, because he was writing both books at the same time, it just it it felt like a really interesting way to take the character, build on his past as leader of the West Coast Avengers, have him sort of bristle coming back to a non-leadership position on the main team, and then realise, actually, I can make the Thunderbolts into something worth being, make them into the, a, a genuine team to rival the Avengers. It was a really good arc for Hawkeye, 
and one that I almost feel has been ignored since. He's never really been put into that leadership position on a team since then, and I think it's a shame because it was such a, a interesting run, I think, for that character. I feel I've mentioned it on air before, but um, a friend, when I was young, a friend went on holiday to uh, the golden land of America where comics live and came back with a random collection of um, floppies. And uh, there was a Hawkeye. There was part one of a Hawkeye miniseries from the mid-90s. And it was basically Hawkeye uh, grieving, uh, mourning the loss of, um, oh, heck. Mockingbird. Mockingbird, thank you, yeah. Mourning the loss of Mockingbird. Going on a uh, an Alaskan retreat where he was just going to live off live off the wild, and and then shenanigans happen where he finds like uh, an escaped lab experiment kind of thing, and then like because the if a superhero him. goes to live in the wilderness to find themselves, they will always stumble across something like that every single time. <laughs> it was very gnarly. It was very gnarly, and the things I loved about it were, you know, again, this is young John reading weird comics. The, the idea that Hawkeye was wearing his superhero costume, but it was really dirty and tattered because mm. he hadn't washed in ages. And B, he had adamantium arrows. Oh, yes. Yes, I remember him having those in the 90s. But he only had a, but he had a limited amount, PJ, mm. which I thought was very cool. It's I love Hawkeye in JLA Avengers as well. He has some of my favourite moments in that book. Yes, his, his, his ongoing frustration at not being able to take down the Flash. Yes, and then the uh, predictable but amazing rivalry with Green Arrow. Yeah, and I've got to say, I've never, I've never warmed to Green Arrow. I, I think, I, I think he he comes across as quite a hypocritical character. <laughs> I I do enjoy Green Arrow as, yeah, he's a, he is a bit of a hypocritical character, but I think there's a lot of fun to be had with that, and I think his interactions with Hawkeye in in JLA Avengers are, are absolutely brilliant. Oh, for sure, and I do. I do appreciate that. I may just have not read the right Green Arrow stories because I know that people have done some very interesting things with the character. I just, uh, yeah, God, whenever he turns up in in a JLA story, and and sometimes even under Morrison's pen, I think um, Final Crisis. I I don't. No one comes enjoy. out of that book looking <laughs> good, though, do they? That's <laughs> no, no. It's so weird. Yeah. I did really like Green Arrow in the um, I can't remember what it's called, but when you get that that really big story in uh, the team, the Hunt for Aquaman, where you've got the main team. Oh, back uh, in the time. Obsidian Age. Yes. Yeah. So then Batman basically recruits a new team to take their place, while the main team travels back in time, and he brings in Green Arrow, and Green Arrow's like, "Yep, so you need me to lead the team. I'm experienced. That's cool. I got this." And Batman then goes, "No, Nightwing's leading the team. You're just on it." Yeah, that was um, the start of um, Joe Kelly's run. That's it, yeah. Uh, following on from Wade, I believe. Yeah. It was a bit of a flex, because it, it, it did kind of open with like a, a 12-part like maxi-series, bas- uh, basically. But I, I remember really enjoying the Obsidian. I haven't revisited it, but I do remember really enjoying it as it was coming out, the Obsidian Age. Yeah, it's, I, oddly enough, I, I, I bought it a few years ago, because it was a bit of a gap in my... JLA collection, and obviously because we're here today talking about it, I very much enjoyed this series even after Morrison left, hmm. and it sounded cool. And I actually really like uh, Doug Manx's artwork. Yes, me too. And uh, yeah, and actually one of the downsides to the Obsidian Age for me is that uh, he's not drawing all of it. 
Yeah, yeah. Doesn't he only draw like one? Because each issue, it would sort of swap between the time periods, wouldn't it? Yes. Each issue. And didn't he only draw one of the time periods? Yes, he drew the past, which is yeah. a really interesting concept to me. Uh, the the idea of like a, a proto league of superhumans like 20,000 years ago sort of thing. Yeah. It's a very Kyle-focused story, actually. It is, isn't it? It is. And isn't that the story that also sort of writes Plastic Man out of the book for a while because of what happens to him during it? Yeah, and I... Yes, indeed. And it's an interesting kind of like handing of the torch, really, because it, mm. it, it's very much like the Magnificent Seven and Plastic Man. Um, <laughs> kind of... It's, well, it's the Avengers moment. It's the thing the Avengers would do like every kind of couple of years or so where characters come and go and they shuffle the deck really so mm. so and then we get that really weird joe kelly lineup which had like major disaster and faith and manitou, manitou raven. raven and i really like i i actually really like that time period for the league it's a, it was really weird and interesting and there was just enough of the core characters to make the new ones seem you know you, you didn't just bristle because it was an entirely new team I think it's what you had to do with the team after you'd had Morrison and Wade, who had, in their own ways, done very classical-styled superhero stories with the main characters you would expect to be on the Justice League. Mm. And obviously Morrison added the extras that he used, and oh, sorry, that they used, and then Wade paired it back a bit, but kept a couple of the extras. Um but then I feel like because you'd had two writers go through that era with those those characters, you did need a bit of a shake up at that point when when a new team came on. Yeah, and yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like you, it was always the um, you know the thing. Like when you when, say you're given the reins to write the Avengers, PJ, and it's like in those first couple of issues where you're establishing your brand, as it were, it's like. What do you do? You go like, okay, so who am I going to have? We've got to have a, f a couple of the founders, if not all of the founders. We've got to have like a couple of like second or third generation Avengers, a few fan favorites. Let's bring in a wild card and let's introduce a brand new character. Is this not the formula? <laughs> like you, yeah. you always, yeah, you kind of like mix it up a little bit. Because um, Busick I did a few, if I recall. He had like triathlon. Yeah, and Silverclaw. Uh, and Silverclaw, yeah. Yeah, and... I remember in, in my 20s, I sort of came up with what my, if I did a run on Avengers, what it would be. And I thought I'd do a story where everyone who had ever been an Avenger got kidnapped by some galactic thing. So a new team of Avengers, which was going to be entirely new characters to the team, had to come in. But all those characters I was going to use have since joined the Avengers through uh, one book or uh, another. So, you know, all right. I don't think there's there's very few characters who haven't been an Avenger now. Just a handful of X-Men, I think. That's about it. <laughs> Yeah, I um I I did basically the same exercise in my head. And the only reason I didn't do it for uh, the JLA is that you know, the JLA has has kind of had this more well, it it hasn't, but you know, this more kind of fixed pantheon of the Magnificent 7 who are, yeah. are you know, it's very hard to imagine it without them sometimes. Yeah. Um but yeah, like I always wanted, you know, I I think who would I have on the team? Cuz yeah, Busick kind of really kind of instilled that love of like playing with the roster. And like having these these lovable characters come back and forth, and how it affected the team the team dynamic. Vision probably would have focused featured quite heavily. Like I love Vision. I have always loved Vision, and um, 
Although I'd, I'd do something with his cape. I'd make it a bit more iconic. I, I'm a big fan, bizarrely, of the uh, the 90s style vision where he had the green cape uh, and... and the, oh, yeah, so it was sort of a bit like his classic outfit, but the colours were swapped around a little bit here and there. And I think that weirdly is one of my favourite looks for Vision. And I think I'm in a minority there. Most people prefer the classic or the white. But um, yeah, I'm a big fan of, of Vision's mid-90s look. And, and that is what I would ask them to bring back if I were running the book. You see, my, my thing is, and it's a bugbear of mine, and you saw it in the New 52, is when you take a very iconic costume and then just throw scuff at it, you know, like like you're just kind of gluing gluing stuff all over it, like what they did to the Flash's costume. Yeah, you just no, it was perfect. Like you don't need to constantly reiterate. Go back to basics. I feel like so that's my, the problem these days. I feel like when a art, new artist comes on a book, they need to try and put their stamp on the character, so characters' looks are changing all the time. But also, like the movies have told us that the way you make a costume work on screen is to add complexity. Yeah. Because wearing like a big unitard of spandex, you know, is is looks a bit weird on a cinematic superhero. But that looks fine on the page, mm. you know. So adding panels, adding like a webbing, adding bulks, brackets and straps, like, I don't know. I, I think it takes away a little bit of the magic of the comics in a way. Yeah. Yeah, but, I agree. But my but my thinking would be I if 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 I if I somehow got the call, uh, I would um, I'd want to bring in John Cassidy uh, from Planetary and mm-hmm. Astonishing X Men, maybe not as the lead artist because I know he's probably very busy. But I would ask him to redesign the costumes because I think he's got a very good track record of merging the idea that it's kind of real fabric. It's also a fake superhero costume, and it's modern, but it's also iconic. Yeah, uh, I agree. I think his astonishing X Men designs were superb. I think he made Kitty Pride look better than she has ever looked, and that was such a simple costume. Yeah, yeah. The, it's essentially the classic, kind of like the classic X Men yeah. costume, but it looked great without just adding stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. See, and see, for me, I'd be like, I want Wonder Man. I want the vision. They've got to be on the team. Hmm. And we're going to do something about Wonder Man's costume. We're going to go back to the the, the original costume, the red and green, well, the green and with red highlights. <laughs> and we're going to do a, a pared down John Cassidy version of that. Vision's mostly perfect, but make his cape. Like, don't add gubbings all over it. Give him a great big yellow glorious cape. Make <laughs> it really bright and iconic and... You know, he he can drape it all over his body. It can be a dramatic thing. He can be an actual spectre. And I'm like, that's 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 the foundation. Start on those two. We'll work from there. Nice. I like it. But PJ, we do occasionally talk about the JLA on this podcast. We already have this episode. <laughs> yeah, I, we do get off topic. I think clearly we're both crying out to do a, a Busick uh, uh, Avengers podcast. Well, we let's finish Morrison's JLA first, and then we'll we'll talk. <laughs> So, PJ, we are uh, in the second issue of a uh, a new a new arc. Well, not a new arc, a new a new short storyline. Yeah. And uh, what's been happening? Well, the uh, General Eiling 
who is a big high up mucky muck in the US Army, has basically staged a coup, taken over from the president, and he's got his little group of superheroes he's created called the Ultramarines, all soldiers who've been given extra dimensional powers, allegedly through a dimensional portal. A la the Fantastic Four. Yep. They have recovered the body of the old Justice League villain, the Shaggy Man, who might be the best Justice League villain of all time. <laughs> and he's now sent them to attack the JLA after faking an alien invasion in Arizona. And um, I was actually a little confused because the previous issue, so we just did um, issue 24 of the main series, which is titled Executive Action. And we're moving into issue 25, Scorched Earth. Mm-hmm. But I got a little confused between recordings because I was looking around for imagery so we could, you know, promote promote what we were talking about. And I seem to have found, like, some covers for issue... The issue we're about to go into, issue 25, which had executive action written on the cover, even though I don't think that's the name of the issue. I think it was not executive action sort of the... the blanket name for the three-part story oh that could be it that could be it yeah but i've got executive action scorched earth and our army at war as the kind of three three issue titles yeah if i flip back in my trade to the the page that opens the storyline that has the three covers reprinted on it it says executive action there so ah okay okay well that that i think we have a marginally different version of the trade because i do not have that page no. Nope. Oh, really? You don't have I the do covers? I do have a page. God, PJ, I'm sorry. I'm an idiot. Found it. <laughs> it's all good. But yeah, so it's um, it's the JLA versus the, the super military, basically. Pretty much. You've launched a surprise attack on not the entire team. Uh, it's Most of the team are there. Batman, Huntress, and Plastic Man are not there. They're off doing something else. Orion is also not there at the moment because he's been on New Genesis uh, looking into something called Mageddon. I mean, I'm sure that's not a major plot point. It won't come up again, don't worry. Uh, and, uh, yeah, as we uh, open on the streets of Phoenix, Arizona, uh, we are we have um, narration, or like a caption, if you will, which uh, I believe is coming from... Well, it's not from Warmaker 1, is it? Is it from the... This is just from the general military, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, this is just a, just some military recorder guy. But yeah, um, there is a massive explosion on the street and uh, three great panels where, again, in the cinematic language of comics, we have this ex- these ex- series of explosions just coming closer and closer as a figure, uh, almost lost amidst the blaze, is racing towards us. Yeah, running ahead of the explosions. And of course, it's the Flash who is rescuing civilians because... The ultramarines and the military didn't bother getting anyone out of Arizona before they launched their attack. Yeah, this is... Uh, in, yeah, in case you had any doubt um, who you should be rooting for, the JLA are heroes. They're saving people. Um, and I should say there's a quite a, a gritty quality to these explosions. Like, it it, it has a lot of um, actual military ordnance to it. You know, yeah. it's street level as opposed to big, flashy... Um, Super heroics, basically. The collateral damage of this issue is something that we'll be talking about, I think, as we go through. But it's something that I think Morrison and Porter do very effectively. They make you feel what's happening in this comic and and what the cost of it is to the general populace, and and it's it's really effective. 
And um, I love Howard Porter. So please, please, Howard, if you're listening, do not think of this as a as a as a knock. This is a light-hearted ribbing. Um, the two children that the Flash are is rescuing look like middle-aged men. <laughs> <laughs> Lol, love your work, big fan. <laughs> Everything else is amazing. Uh, uh, yeah, those are um, older faces. I like that one of them's wearing a t-shirt that says Tubby Telly. Um, uh, but yeah, so um, Flash uh, has uh, a child in each arm, uh, and uh, the narration uh, refers to it, refers to this as Operation Superstorm, and it's now underway. So as Flash uh, drops these uh, these two children, well, you know, safely drops them with some civilians. Uh, he races back into the fray. And uh, we see that the civilians seem to have gathered at the edge of town where Flash is dropping them off. And um, they are hammering at a shimmering purple energy wall, which one can assume has surrounded the town. Yeah, and there's just a, a large gathering of people. The, I, I assume Flash has saved most of these people as everything else goes off. But the narration also tells us that the, the army have sort of predicted Flash's optimum return trajectory to the battle, and they've got some shrapnel mines there that they're going to detonate. And, I, PJ, I feel you're the king of a double-page spregs if you want to, uh, you know, uh, turn the page. And this is glorious, this spread. So we get this, this huge image of the Ultramarines battling the Justice League, and uh, Flash is... Running through, he hits the shrapnel mines and lands uh, on on his back on the pavement. Kyle is vomiting into his own hand while he creates a stop sign above his head that just stopping bullets that are flying out of a helicopter at the top of the page from, from hitting him. But it looks like there's not a lot Kyle can do at the moment. Zauriel's flying around as he's dodging something from Flo. That's his name, isn't it? The yes, water yeah. guy. Uh, yep. 4D is attacking the Flash as he runs through the shrapnel mines, and Warmaker <laughs> One is smashing Superman's face into a building. There's fire everywhere, rubble everywhere, and here we get the title and credits: Scorched Earth, Grant Morrison, writer; Howard Porter, penciler; John Del Inca, Ken Lopez, letterer; Pat Garrahy, colorist; Heroic Age Separations; Tony Bedard, associate editor; Dan Raspler, editor. Clearly, this was a. a um... This period in comics, PJ, was quite a formative era for a young John um, mm. because everything the Ultramarines represent is every superhero I tried creating at that time. <laughs> like, Warmaker 1 is glorious, and I, I have such a soft spot for how heroes looked at this time. Like, it's it's wonderful. Yeah, and that's, that's the main focus of the page, Warmaker 1 smashing Superman through a building, and it's it's quite a jarring image. Superman is basically on fire, and you can't see his face because his whole head has been smashed into a wall. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, of course, and the impact of you don't really think about it because we we see him get beat down a lot. But this is meant to be an impactful moment. Like you think of everything Superman's gone through in this series, and here he is essentially getting a missile to the back of the head. Yep. Yep. Um. As we turn the page, uh, we see uh, uh, soldiers kind of stationed on the roof of a building, and they are uh, opening fire with, you know, very real-world conventional weaponry. Uh, bullets flying down towards uh, Zariel, who's kind of flying through through the street, and um, we get um, 
uh, a concern going up the chain of command, which is, we are firing on an angel. Some of the men are religious, sir. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, to which their commanding officer tells them, uh, this is a direct presidential order. Well, we know that's not true. And also, our intelligence tells us that the angel wears mortal flesh. So you can tell your boys in the Bible Belt that it's okay to shoot him, basically. He's a fallen angel, and presidential orders trump religion, apparently. <laughs> um, but yeah, but um, as we know, PJ, these orders haven't come from the president. No, they, they've come from General Eiling, who uh, this soldier radios in, say that everything okay at your end, and General Eiling just says everything's just fine as he points a gun at his own neck. And again, small thing, in the language of comics, I love it when you can enunciate individual words yeah. in bubbles. It's such a simple trick, and it's very effective. Um, and then, yeah, poor Zariel screams great God as an explosion sets his wings on fire. Um, he looks horrified. It's a fantastic panel of Zauriel. It's it's I, just under half the page, this one panel, but the panic you can see in Zauriel's face. And Zauriel's been a very collected character through the last few issues. It feels like it takes a lot to rattle him. So this is you, you can tell this is trouble for the League. Zauriel's worried. It's a problem. Yeah, that's a good point. Yes, you're right, actually. He's very quite a reassuring presence. Um but we cut to the edge of town and the incredibly 90s uh, um, effect of the energy wall. And I, this is glorious to me, PJ. This is exactly like, um, I think they were using the same effect at around the same time over at Wildstorm for mm. um, the authority whenever they opened a door, a portal. It's it's that thing that comics often did where you'd think actually, oh, if I stare at this long enough, is it going to do like a magic eye picture? I also love it. It's just that era where they had just enough kind of Photoshop. It was just becoming enough of a viable product that you could just apply filters to stuff. It's it's lovely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but um, but basically, there's no way out. Um, Steel uh, is marveling at the thing. You know, it's a. Uh, he says it's it's just. It's incredible. The more energy we put in, the stronger it gets. Uh, it's wild. And Barda, in typical blunt fashion, is just attempting to beat the crap out of it with her mega rod. Yeah, and Wonder Woman's shouting to them, basically, going, look, you're, you're just wasting your strength. We need to work as a team. We're not doing that at the moment. This is why the Ultramarines have the upper hand. They are working as a team. Uh, at which point Pulsate shows up, Steel throws his hammer at him, and Pulsate just shatters it with attractor discs. Again, it's not quite it's not quite a shield, but a character with cool discs. You know, it's very Captain America-y. Um, I love Pulsate. He's the greatest. Uh, basically, character design and innovation peaked at this point. Um, <laughs> and again, just pure Morrison weirdness. Um, these two flying golden discs shoot towards Barda and Steel. Um, and one of them, well, basically they clamp onto their backs respectively. And, um, one of them is generating an intense gravitational field to the point where Barda is supporting the weight of a continent on her shoulders, which pounds her into the ground, taking her out of the equation. Yeah, it, it's, Barda's really strong. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but pop quiz, PJ, what are the four uh, fundamental forces of the universe which Pulsate can tap into using the unified field harmonic? 
uh, popcorn, uh, movies, slime, Just... and cardboard. Perfect. No, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, and uh, name a member of the Hyper Clan? Oh, uh, Captain Marvel. God, he's on fire. <laughs> really good. <laughs> Um, but I believe PJ um, that uh, steel is being bedeviled by. Uh, is it? Is it? Is it the force of cardboard? Is that? Is that the one? <laughs> no, it's popcorn. He's got popcorn filling uh, up his armor, and. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, it's generating uh, the shield. Uh, the disc on she- uh, Skeel's back is generating an intense ele- electromagnetic field. It's pulsing, and it's basically killed his armor. So he. He's, he's scuck, he can't do anything, and Wonder Woman is attempting in vain to rip it off his back. But unfortunately, they're approached by 4D, who's snuck up on them by uh, approaching in two dimensions, and then she folds up through the third dimension to draw on the gigantic energies of the fourth dimension and punches Wonder Woman with a giant energy fist. And we get a, a rare dedicated splash page with no dialogue, Showing Wonder Woman uh, cannonballing backwards through three buildings, toppling all of them. Uh, yeah. It's incredible. And you can see damage on other buildings around as well. And there are people sort of there looking scared um, un- underneath the buildings. This page made me think very much about Zack Snyder's DC movies and how snyder in my opinion fundamentally misunderstands these characters Mm. because Mm. those movies feature so much collateral damage but don't show the heroes doing anything about it or trying to save anyone and in this issue you've got this collateral damage but it's all being caused by the bad guys by the Ultramarines, and the JLA are doing their very best to save people and stop it happening. We see Flash rescuing people. That's what they're doing. They don't want to be in this fight. They don't want to be causing this damage. And to be to be fair, I think there's there's a degree to which the Marvel movies are guilty of it as well, not to the same level as as, as those DC films, the, the Snyder ones particularly, Man of Steel especially. But I, I feel like people have read comics like this and gotten completely the wrong idea and then gone and made films of them. Well, that's really the shocking thing, isn't it? Because we have to assume that Snyder has read this series because, you know, where else do you get this this kind of obsession with Darkseid? You know, this the Rock of Ages basically gave mm. us the modern Darkseid. But no, but I agree. And I, I have some thoughts about the depiction of violence in this storyline, which I'm going to kind of save to the end. Yeah. But... This is an incredible image. Like, it's, it's Porter just really flexing. Um, and we're not really meant to revel in the violence. You know, it's meant to be shocking, and it is. Like, the the collateral destruction is something that clearly Morrison and Porter are, you know, painfully aware of here. But we are drawing attention to it in a way that we haven't up until this point. They're showing that it's a toll, that it's, you know a superhero fight like this has consequences and it's something that the league are aware of they're showing us that the league are aware of it and they're showing us that the league don't want this to happen they don't want victory at all costs and and yeah and you know if ever you were wondering about the power of the uh the ultramarines and indeed whether 
you know, um, 4D had anything to offer other than going flat. I mean, this is it, really. Like, it's a wonderful showcase of all their abilities as mm. well, which is, you know, always fun when you're introducing villains. Um, but yeah, that is three leaguers instantly out of the picture. Pretty bad. And, Pretty yeah. bad. Speaking of, we cut then to Flash and Aquaman. Flash has shrapnel in his calf, and the two of them are stood underneath another building. I presume this is one of the ones Wonder Woman's just been punched through that yes. is about to collapse on them. Yes, and a, a very, you know, I, I, I don't want to, you know, oversing the praises of the the battle choreograph- choreography here, because it, it's, it's other, other creators have done it a lot. But the continuation of the violence, the continuation of the action between scenes and characters is really good. Like, you know, the the League have battled all kinds of stuff over the course of this series. But, yeah, they are... It's, this is really rare. This might be the first time we've seen them so completely on the back foot. Kind of getting beaten, really. Yeah, and in 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 a physical confrontation. This isn't like when Prometheus boarded the watchtower and outsmarted them and started taking them down one at a time and how had meticulously planned everything. This is just these really powerful guys coming in and essentially not holding back at all mm. and just trying to take down the league with brute force. But, and again, it's it's interesting because, uh, yeah, again, kind of like Prometheus, if you can't, if you don't, even with the power of the Ultramarines, if, Ultramarines, if you can't face them kind of head on, the military is fighting a little dirty here because they're yeah. kind of using every advantage they can get. Um, but thankfully, the Flash, despite you know not being able to run because of a shrapnel injury, um, is able to lend speed force energy to Aquaman. And again, it, I always love it when Morrison has fun, particularly with um, the way the powers work. Like um, you know, it does some incredible things with Flash's powers over the course of his series. Same with Kyle. Same with Electric Superman. May he mm-hmm. rest in peace. <laughs> yep but with flash speed aquaman manages to get them both clear and there's a lovely moment where you're sort of in slow motion seeing bricks fall past them and, and wide-eyed he just asks is, is this what it's like for you all the time but wally being aware of the situation is like you need to slow down now <laughs> yeah um wonderful little close-up of aquaman there um and yeah, and then uh, the two of them are just kind of like crashed out on the floor. There's still kind of like lightning crackling around Aquaman's feet. And uh, Flash is bemoaning the fact that um, the tendons in his leg have been completely sliced apart. Uh, and uh, yeah, this could take hours to heal, <laughs> which is which is great. I love a weird quirk of the Flash is his healing factor. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he, he says, you know, these military guys are trashing us. We walked right into it. And... Then Aquaman starts to worry about Wonder Woman because he realizes she's under all the rubble and they need to get her out of it. But then Flash realizes that water coming out of nearby pipes is actually flow. Yeah, and uh, it's it's really like a blinking you miss it, but when Porter draws flow, which he does very well, um, you can see his 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 little water face kind of amidst the ripples. It's a mm. it's a very neat effect, and as we see this kind of glob of living liquid flowing up around the Flash's legs. Yeah, and then he just forms around the Flash, starts to drown him, says his entire body is composed of smart liquid, and then says to to Aquaman, I'm more Aquaman than you'll ever be, and then just smashes him upwards using his his body as a high-pressure hose. 
And again, showcasing everybody's powers gives a fun little speech where he points out that he can he can become anything from ice or glue, which I, I really like. And I don't know if I mentioned this in the last episode, I basically had a childhood hero I created who is Flo. <laughs> even looked like Flo as well, which is weird. Like, I wonder if um, I was tapping into the same kind of um, weird mental space that Morrison <laughs> was. I don't know. Well, had you just read this comic? No, no, I swear. I did it as a, when I was younger. I, it was when I picked this book up uh, at university. I was like, oh, bloody hell. That looked just like um, my weird little character. <laughs> Scribbled in a school exercise book. But uh, Flo has punched Aquaman right up onto the roof of a skyscraper. And then some helicopters approach and like, hey, it's Aquaman. His skin's tough, but he's not Superman tough, so we can get him with bullets. And they just start firing at him. It's brutal. Yeah, and one has to assume that that would hurt, even yeah. if his his skin is is bulletproof. Um, and we get a fun little shot where Aquaman, despite being peppered with bullets, looks down at the street below, and we see Flo striding towards him, leaving wet footprints, and ha- still has the uh, tiny body of the Flash inside him, which is which is lovely. Yeah, yeah. And then we get a, a few panels then of, of Flo walking through the street as he says look if you try and move at super speed you'll boil yourself just best to stay calm and drown apparently it's the best way to go i heard and then in a moment i utterly love and i had forgotten about until i reread this issue last night aquaman just dives into flow from the rooftop (laughs) and it is superb yeah and again porter doing a wonderful job of showing how the shape and form of flow actually works um we have a great thing where he's basically kind of like on all fours. This is a big man of kind of made of water. You can kind of imagine him kind of like vomiting if he had a head, but he doesn't. He just has this big kind of gaping cavity where his face would have been. It's lovely. Yeah, and I think, I, you know, we talk about the great Superman moments and the great Green Lantern moments that Morrison and Porter have done through JLA. I think it's easy to forget that they've done some fantastic Aquaman moments together as well, and I genuinely feel like this is just jumping into a being made of water from the top of a building is 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 brilliant. Oh yeah, I mean, this is a character who, you know, for many people is the butt of a lot of jokes, Aquaman. You know, his, his power set is maybe not as kind of, you know, kind of unique as some of the other leaguers, but yeah, he's He's got he's got um he's got a nice sort of amalgam of powers, you know, a little bit of yeah. telepathy, the the durability. But yeah, he's he's a formidable member of the league, you know. It's it's great. Yeah. But Flo does sort of start to regroup quickly and attacks them in the form of rain, but then Flash just moves his arms at super speed, accelerates his molecules, and turns him into steam. And which is apparently very unpleasant, even if you can control your entire molecular structure, because we yeah, we see Flo's face kind of like screaming as yeah. it happens. So, yay, I guess kind of strike one for the Justice League, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, but uh, sadly we then cut to Warmaker 1 who's managed to get Superman by the hair and is pointing a missile at his head at point-blank range. Says he's overloading his super senses with broadcasts on every available wavelength of the electromagnetic spectrum. So that's why Superman is a bit out of it and why Warmaker 1 has been able to take him down. Because you have to imagine on a pure strength versus strength fight, it would be no contest. Superman would cream him. Yeah, and and um, it's always funny the kind of sliding power scale of, our, of obviously any superhero. You know, it's like when the story needs them to be down they have to be down of course you could you could argue 
forever whether whether Superman would legitimately be taken down. But it's actually nice to see him be vulnerable. You know, it's actually nice to see him. It actually makes him stronger in a way to know that he he can be hurt occasionally. Yeah. And I feel like his power levels don't fluctuate so much in in Morrison's run. Morrison just comes up with reasons why this particular thing can stop him. Mm. And it's also nice that like Superman presumably has just been getting his ass beat for like the last 12 minutes essentially. And we get a lovely little moment where he's angry, which I is always fun because that's the point about Superman. He's not weak, he's not soft. He's he's honest and just. And yeah. it's like, yeah, he's a good man who is now quite pissed off because he's you've been shooting him in the head with missiles constantly. And he um, particularly seems to bristle at the idea that, according to Warmaker 1, he betrayed his country. So, yeah, this is apparently the lie that the Ultramarines have been told. Well, it's it's the thing they said in the previous issue where the Justice League of America, but they'll help other countries. And that's enough for General Eiling to treat them as enemies isn't it so simply by being a global superhero these people see superman as a traitor and superman quite rightly says i've never betrayed anyone in my life and then says there's something wrong with general eiling and then starts bouncing his heat vision off a reflective surface <laughs> which is fun which is lovely and yeah into like a a kind of um uh it's an oil tanker isn't it yeah, an oil tanker lying on its side in the street. And there's a massive explosion which separates uh, Warmaker 1 and Superman, who um, he's probably really glad he's got that kind of durability because he's on fire. And uh, yeah, when Superman it just looks that beaten and it just goes, great Scott, um, you know it's not good. But he manages to sort of regroup with... Kyle, who's clutching his stomach and, and just looking awful. Zauriel has managed to get Wonder Woman out from the rubble, so he's got her in his arms, but she's unconscious. And Zauriel just says, they're, they're killing us. Why is the US Army trying to kill us? And, yeah, and just cementing the idea that the League are completely on the back foot and have had no time to even process what's happening since the attack began. Uh, except for the Flash, who was obviously very quick to react and instantly went to save people, which yeah. is great. So we suddenly cut to Area 52. <laughs> and uh, um, Batman is uh, leading his little covert team through um, through kind of darkened tunnels and uh, I have to imagine some kind of um, uh, ventilation shafts and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and as the lights suddenly come on, we see that uh, Plastic Man has um, shapeshifted into a xenomorph, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the moment the lights come on, uh, poor Huntress almost has a heart attack. <laughs> it's a it's a lovely little moment in the panel, but I also love when in the same panel, Plastic Man says, so Batman, what, what made you decide to burgle a top secret military installation? And Batman just says, I decided it was in the national interest. Which just, <laughs> again, feels pure Batman to me. If anything, it feels pure Kevin Conroy's Batman to me. You yes. know, it feels very Batman the Animated Series, that kind of... that That's the Batman we're dealing with, and I love it. And also, the thing... And this is a very subtle kind of meta point, but the thing I love about Morrison's depiction of Batman in this series, in particular, is the idea that he's not just this kind of dour, grimdark, brooding figure. 
Mm. I actually think that Batman has quite a sense of humor. Yeah. It's incredibly dry. Like I this does kind of feel to me this is not Batman being badass, although he is naturally. This is him actually kind of making a, a very subtle joke, which is the kind of thing like if you're hanging around Batman, you'd ne- you'd be like, wait, did he? No, no, he, no, he wouldn't have done. No, of course not. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. But he, he explains where they are. This is the the home of the Threshold Project, which is where General Eiling's doorway to another dimension exists. And then we get the classic Batman <laughs> as he lifts a floor grating and spots a guard and says, "Right, we've got some options." And then Plastic Man says, yeah, but I know all the funny ones. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to which Plastic Man uh, drops down into the corridor and turns into a uh, military general. Of course, he looks a little weird because he's blue, uh, red and yellow, as is Plastic Man's fault. Uh, and uh, he instantly starts kind of screaming at this soldier that they are apparently testing a top-secret X-Files Black Ops microwave mind-control weapon that for for at least half an hour it will make you see everybody's uniform in bright primary colours, which is is amazing. It's the next bit where he says, and so help me God, if you ain't seeing my uniform in bright primary colours, you are a sissy Middle Eastern communist traitor with no future in this man's army, soldier. (laughs) And as he's screaming in this man's face, he says, what do you see when you look at me? Um, the guy says, sir, bright primary colours, sir. But what about my... And then he gets kind of tranked in the neck and just falls over. Because yeah. <laughs> Huntress has fired a dart at him from behind. And uh, Plasma Man goes, what happens if a Cape Crusader, to which Huntress replies, he took the shortcut, and then we just see Batman walking through a corridor past two uh, groaning, unconscious gargs on the floor. And then he opens a door and walks into a, a, the room where General Eiling is sat, slumped over some consoles, blood pouring from his head with a gun in his hand. Yes, and uh, it's not too graphic, but you do get the kind of tattered bits of like his, I'm going to be charitable and say it's his hat, um, <laughs> which, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, and a great shot of Batman, just his silhouette up at the top. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 a really cool panel. There's some lovely Kirby detail to the technology in the background as well. Yes, this is of course. Um, yeah, we saw this um, this area, if you will, uh, in the previous issue. This is apparently where the Ultramarines got their powers. Um, but as we cut back to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, we get the Ultramarines uh, essentially kind of recharging. Um, uh, Warmaker One is just kind of sitting with his head hanging while uh, a technician straps more missiles to his arms. <laughs> um, but yeah, but basically all is not right in paradise. Um, 4D is very troubled by this. She's like, look, okay, we, we, what's going on here? Like we are, why are we trying to kill the JLA? And like, why is it that like we're leveling a US town and endangering c- citizens? Like this ain't right. Surely. And, and- she actually points out the JLA are trying to save lives. Mm. It's a it's a it's a wonderful point. <laughs> you know, it's an excellent point. Um, but Warmaker One, with a kind of like very dejected, kind of flat tone, basically says they're like they're presidential orders. You you know, we don't question orders, basically. Yeah, and she asks, Well, when did you ever obey an order you couldn't believe in? And she says she knows him, and then Warmaker One just loses it and says, You don't know anything about me anymore. Takes off his helmet. And there's there's nothing there. 
there's just a transparent head that sort of warps. You can see the wall through it, but it's sort of warped, so you can see the shape, but there's nothing else to it. And he just shouts, look at me, at least you look human. All I am is this suit. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a it's such an unnecessary bit of character development, but I really like it. Because these are in many ways throwaway characters. I I know we see a bit more of them down the line. But like, yeah, I don't know. It's just something I like about again, Morrison's work. Didn't need to put a bit of humanity in, but did. But it gives you an extra dimension to these characters so that while we may disagree with what they're doing, obviously we side with the Justice League, you can sort of understand why they're doing it mm. and even even Flo who just kind of puts his hand on uh, 4D's shoulder and basically says look they're presidential orders and you know really what can you do he looks sad they're kind of in a bind really they have to do what they're told I've got to say Flo's sad face is heartbreaking <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah. stunning work I think from Porter and, and the art team because it is it's it genuinely upsetting you're like oh I'm sad I mean, Flo was very much enjoying kind of drowning the Flash yeah. earlier. Um, but yeah, so maybe he's less sad about getting the opportunity to fight the League and maybe he's more sad about the apparent shared lack of humanity that him and... Because we can infer perhaps that, yeah, like if Warmaker 1 thinks he's lost his humanity, being a, being a big walking waterman probably makes socialising a little difficult. I feel like there's also... You know, it feels to me like there is a bond between the Ultramarines. The four of them are very close. And because 4D is upset, Flo is also like, look, he's trying to comfort her, but he also is is trying to empathise. And, you know, they're all feeling it, I think. Yeah, and it's it's, it's so, like, kind of blinking, you, you miss it. It's a very brief scene, but it really does kind of give the impression that these characters have a bit more depth and maybe like a kind of... Um, a history, a shared yeah. history, which yeah. is a, a small, unnecessary detail. I cannot stress that enough. They could have just been boring, one-dimensional villains, but they're not. They're two-dimensional. It's nice. It, yeah. it, it gives you something. Although I am sad that Pulse 8 isn't here. Yeah. Also, 4D is four-dimensional. What, just in general? Oh, yeah. Pete. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it took me a second. There She's we a four-dimensional villain, John. <laughs> PJ, um, as punishment, tell us what the JLA are doing. They are basically taking stock. Aquaman and Flash have rejoined the others. Uh, Kyle has created a bucket and is vomiting into it while Zauriel looks after Wonder Woman and Flash sits on the floor trying to heal. Zauriel says, look, Wonder Woman's badly concussed. A sonic weapon has disabled Green Lantern's inner ear functions. Flash is wounded and in mild shock. No idea where the others are. And Aquaman's like, they're going to attack. We need to prepare. And Superman's just listening He's just stood there, still on fire. <laughs> he's just listening to... He's basically listening into the conversation we just saw between the Ultramarines. Which is really good. That's a kind of, again, the language of comics and the things you can do with a super a super-powered character. Um, yeah, I do like that he just quietly kind of pats a bit of fire off yeah. his shoulder. That's nice. Yeah, but he says he's watching them, he's listening to them, and he's in fact scanning the molecular structure of their bodies, and they're dying. The Ultramarines are dying. Well, he says they're going to die. And I and he looks pissed when he says it. So, you know, maybe we're meant to think that Superman has finally crossed that line and he's going to go and kill some people. Oh, okay. <laughs> I never read it that way. I assumed that was it. I, I always assumed it had been left on a, a bit of a... Obviously, we know Superman's not going to do that. Superman's 
a hero, despite what some people think. And, um, you know, I always thought it was meant to be like a bit of a cliffhanger. Like, ooh, are we meant to think that Superman is so pissed that he's going to he's gonna kill someone? I don't know. That was always just my read on it. I, I always read it as Superman has realised what's happened to these people. And even though they have been beating the crap out of him for the last 20 minutes, he is angry at what's been done to them. That's always been my take on it anyway. Well, I think what's great is that it you can really read it either way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, and, and I can kind of understand why whatever is rationale, uh, Superman would be kind of pissed right now because yep. what, Zariel, Aquaman and Superman, they're like the only functioning leaguers right yep. now. Yeah. Yep. Always would be Superman. Um, but yeah, we cut back to Batman and co. Uh, where Batman is um, tapping away on a big military computer. Uh, and he says, Welcome to Threshold, which is apparently where a portal was opened into higher dimensional space and where the Ultramarines got their powers. But um, Batman says, Well, look, it's, it's a movie set. This is all fake. This is all just a, a, a studio, basically. Um, none of this is real. Yeah, and Huntress quite rightfully asks, Well, how did they get their powers then? What am I missing? And Batman points out that, you know, there's they've got metagene DNA. This is the genetic variant that distinguishes superhumans from the rest of the population. Eiling's geneticists managed to synthesize the gene and basically fed it into these four soldiers. And then Batman says, but it is lethal. Their powers are overloading their nervous systems. The ultramarines will be dead within weeks. Now, PJ, the the whole kind of thing in the DC universe, a universe where they don't have, well, capital M mutants as such, um, wasn't there a big thing in the 80s or, or the very early 90s with the gene bomb? Does that ring a bell? It does, yeah. Um, I think it's a thing that both DC and Marvel have done. There's a, a metahuman gene that superheroes have, but it's one of those very nebulous concepts that can sort of be stretched and squeezed to fit whichever story you happen to be doing at the time. Yeah, because it was a way of essentially creating a ton of superheroes at a time when when um, they were looking to kind of like create a few new titles or revitalize mm. old ones. Because oddly enough, I know um, uh, Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol a series I very much love, opens in the aftermath of the crossover event that created the Gene Bomb because the character of Crazy Jane gained her powers because of that, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a way, and as I say, I think they've both done it, both companies did it, but it was a way of creating superheroes that weren't mutants in the Marvel Universe and without having to say mutants in the DC Universe. So, And I'll be honest with you, unless you're doing something like mutants over in marvel you know i can get that like you know mutants are a biological thing um i've never really liked the idea that there was some unifying thing that kind of defined a a super superhuman yeah essentially because it's like i thought the beauty of like the league or the avengers was that you had some who were as guardians you had some who got their powers from technology or some who got it from a magic wand. You, you know what I mean? Like, it was just meant to be diverse and weird. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's why you get... Like, this is just a throwaway line from Batman to explain the origins of the Ultramarines. That's it. And that's as much as we see of this... this the gene in this story. And I, I like when it's done like that, when it's just, well, I'm just going to say this, and then we're done with it. 
and that's their oh, origin. Yeah, fine. no, this is more me just doing some meta commentary on on, on it all. But, but but yeah, when it's used as the basis of a whole story, it's a bit more, or at least for a twist in a story or something like that, then it can be a bit. Oh Jesus! Yeah, because you know, like Plastic Man fell into like a vat of chemicals. Yeah. Does he have the meta gene? I I I don't know. I mean, although later stories have suggested he doesn't even have DNA anymore. <laughs> He's just yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, but um, Batman, uh, you know, in addition to pointing out that the Ultramarines are going to die, points out that Eiling is already dying because Superman noticed an inoperable brain tr- tumor in his in his head when he when he went to the press conference earlier. Yeah, and as Huntress goes off to check the the lab next door, Dead Eiling's voice comes over a tannoy saying, "Oh, I solved that problem already." And Plastic Man says, "This is the most tasteless ventriloquist act I've ever seen." Uh, uh- and you may have already forgot. You may have forgotten about it, PJ. It, you'd be forgiven if you had. But um, the storyline did open with Warmaker One retrieving a certain hairy humanoid from the bottom of the ocean. I could never forget the Shaggy Man. How could how could we forget <laughs> the Shaggy Man? Uh, while Eiling's, well, seemingly voice. Well, I don't know where's it coming from. This this uh, nebulous voice coming from above points out that the synthetic metagene allowed him to transfer his consciousness from a sick brain into something better. He just had to wait for the right kind of body. Hmm. Yeah, and Batman realises immediately what's going on and shouts for Huntress to get out of the lab. But she's already in there, and we see this giant foot slam down in front of her as Eiling's monologue continues, but this time with proper speech bubbles pointing up towards the owner of this foot, saying that the Ultramarine Corps are going to kill the JLA in Phoenix, and then they'll die, because their job's been done. The planet won't need superhuman protectors, because he's going to take it over. This isn't a half-baked villain scheme. He says, this has been a carefully planned military operation. America is already mine. Maybe you think you can stop me. Um, And as Huntress kind of falls back in horror, we turn the page to see the colossal figure of Eiling I guess we can call him Eiling stepping out of a chamber dripping with liquid with kind of medical tags and and pins all over his body which is the body of the shaggy man but now hairless he's shaved the shaggy man and that is the biggest crime that anyone in this comic commits I think he he shaved the shaggy man (laughs) and uh yeah, and we just get this looming, colossal shape. God bless the 90s. As he says, I'd like to see you try. There we That's go. It. To be continued. <laughs> <sighs> wow. That's a great issue. It, it is. Uh, this 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 story, this whole three-part story, I, I love the whole thing. Each issue is brilliant, isn't it? This is really like... This feels like kind of Morrison really just perfectly in their stride like this is this is seamless seamless storytelling i would go as far as to say kind of like almost flawless storytelling i think this Mm. is just this delivers everything a monthly issue of a frankly well the biggest superhero comic in the world should at this time it's it's wonderful yeah i 100 percent agree i think it's it's every single aspect of this comic is, is superb everything is done brilliantly and I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, and 
Yeah, and I guess it's it's very funny, kind of yeah, the fact that this came immediately after One Million, which was a I, you know don't want to go into it again. We had we had a few thoughts on that. Yeah, but you do wonder if kind of after. And I don't know what order this was all written in, but the the actual process of creating one million was such a massive thing, and and ambitious for Morrison in particular. I wonder if this is like kind of just Morrison relaxing. You know, this this feels <laughs> this feels like oh god, you know, after all that work, I'm just going to write an amazing, fun three parter. It's great. Yeah, maybe, maybe, and it just works so well though. It's it's so well put together. Like the setup in issue one, everything comes together. You've got the moments where Superman in issue one has sort of gone, something's not right. And then Batman confirms and expands on that in this issue with what he finds. And then it all builds up to what we're going to get next issue as well. And it's, it's yeah, it's a lovely three-act story. Do you... Um, uh, the... The context and the timing of this is really interesting because what this came out in January 1999. Mm. It seems like a, uh, an oversimplification to say that the world was a very simple, uh, no, not <laughs> simple, a very different place then. Yeah. yeah. And this is a kind of quite an anti establishment take for. Heroes which are, you know, Superman, Truth, Justice, and the American Way. I'm not saying that other stories haven't done this, but this is a story that doesn't necessarily paint the kind of military complex in a in a particularly favourable light. Yeah. And I, I think Morrison is in no way shy of their dislike and disdain for you know, arms races and the, you know, the nuclear race in particular. And and I think Morrison's talked at length at how Superman was meant to save us from the bomb, basically, from war. Um, so this feels like Morrison doing, um, I don't know if it's deep or not, but it, it, it's um, it's a little subversive. It's a little critical. And I, I just wonder what the landscape was at the time in like 1999, you know, to do that. You know, would this have ruffled any feathers, do you think? Probably. Um, this would have been towards the beginning of George Bush's first term, George Bush Jr. So, you know, we all know how everyone felt there. You had the had the second Gulf War happen. No, that didn't happen until after 9-11, did it? But, you know, you still had that very much he wanted a war, George Bush. Um, it was kind of his thing. Give me a reason. And... I feel like a lot of comics at the time had this sort of, for a for a few years around this time, had this sort of anti-military bent. You saw it in Avengers as well in Jeff Johns's run. There, uh, well, you see, that's the that's the really interesting thing to me because this is this is nineteen ninety nine. So you know, and I know the decades in terms of the cultural influences don't neatly line up with the calendar, but things. The the 2000s, for many reasons, were very, had a very different take on this sort of thing. Mm. And I find it interesting that maybe it was happening around this time, but we started to see superheroes and the military across many titles kind of overlapping a lot. And sometimes it was critical, but sometimes, you know, they were, they were part of it. I mean... 
the, the Ultimates over at Marvel, you know, which kind of informed the movies for a little while at least. The idea that the Avengers were just a branch of the military, essentially. I feel like the the difference between the movie version and the Ultimates was the movies took the look of the Ultimates and sort of the the shield connection but kept the characteristics more like their Earth 616 counterparts. And I think there was a weird dichotomy at play at Marvel at this time because yeah you had the Ultimates which was pretty pro military almost, you know. Oh, um yeah, um <laughs> Again, it's Miller, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's the subtlety of a brick, yeah. But at the same time as, as you had the Ultimates, you had Jeff Johns on the Avengers, which had the crossover story between Iron Man, Thor and Avengers, where Iron Man and Thor have a massive fight that the American military wants to get involved in, and Captain America just puts his foot down and says, you're not getting involved. And there's this general guy going, oh, we got her, we got her, and Cap just basically fires an order at everyone else going, no, don't do it. And these soldiers then go, uh, okay, and salute Cap. But it's very much, it feels anti-military. And that was at the same time as Miller was putting the Ultimates out. So I, I don't think there was any necessarily company-wide no, thing, either no. DC or Marvel. But you did have writers who were pushing, not pushing an agenda, but laying their point of view out one way or the other at the time. Well, it's a really weird thing, isn't it? Because, you know, Morrison is this kind of, like, bizarre Scottish chaos magician, you know, um, very counterculture, you know. And, and, and the idea that the, the, the weirdness that made Morrison Morrison in the 80s has filtered its way onto, onto this kind of big mainstream book, you know. And it's, it's interesting, like, it's... It, it, Morrison was a, was a weird hire in many ways, mm. you know, and obviously did in, incredible work. But yeah, it's just kind of weird to have this kind of like um, Bowie-like, fluid, challenging character writing these kind of all-American heroes. It's it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it really is, and I I much prefer certainly these days JLA and the Avengers to what was going on in the Ultimates. Yeah, and it's funny because I really liked the Ultimates at the time. Uh, I did. And, you know, I, it's not nothing's 100% terrible. There's probably, like, some some good things in there. Um, but, God, it's a cynical book. Like, I think, yeah. you know, Ultimates came out when I was in my early 20s, and it was so different to anything that had been done before. It felt groundbreaking in its own way that I think... To a degree, I would overlook the flaws and just go... And because the art was stunning, you know, you mm. cannot say Brian Hitch's art was anything other than beautiful. It, you, I just went with it and told myself I loved it. And then sort of when I'd revisit it later on, I'd realise actually, no, I'm not a fan of this. I'm not a fan of this take on these characters. And that was then obviously cemented when Ultimates 3 came out and oh. did what it did. <laughs> But it was. I mean, that's just a different flavour of awful. I'm not sure there's anything redeemable in that. Well, Joe Madarara's art. Joe, Joe, Joe Mag's art, actually, yeah. No, there is but, a gem there. But what I would say is the characters from Ultimates 2 to Ultimates 3 do feel consistent. Yes. Yes, that's probably fair. Um, I was. I remember reading something quite insightful at the time, because like, I was enjoying the Ultimates, and I know, I know it got quite delayed for a while. 
Mm. Uh, and I used to visit um, a, a frequent a comics news site, which I don't believe is exists anymore, called silverbulletcomics.com. Oh, okay. No, I, good, I have no idea, to be honest. Just good news and commentary and stuff. And and um, this at a time when I was still kind of actively consume that. And um, I always remember a, a quite a good critic at the time, whose name I can't recall, pointing out that the, the problem with the Ultimates is that the characters kind of ended up being so hateable towards mm. the end. Was that, like, Miller spends a lot of time reveling in making these characters unlikable. And then at the end of the series, kind of pulls the rug out from under you and goes, ah, well, it turns out that I'm aware of these these issues. Like, it was all lampshaded, and yes, they're horrible people. But then you still have to root for them so they can save the day. Yeah. Like, that was, like, the paradox with it, in a way. Like... They were very unheroic heroes, um, even just from a storytelling perspective. I remember there's another one. Um, did you read any of uh, Justice League Elite? That some of it. That was at a weird point where the comic shop I was going to would sometimes miss sporadic issues here and there of certain series. So I think I only read a couple of random chunks of Justice League Elite. Well. That was the tail end of Joe Kelly's run. Mm. Uh, and I think actually coincided with a, kind of like issue 100 of this series. Uh, because they did a big a big thing for issue 100. Um, and I always remember, I've got the trade paperback of it. And I, you know, I, I, I liked it. I, I do like it. It's, it's a darker take on the league. And um, Doug Mank's artwork is, is incredible. Um, but it opens with this, a Superman standalone story, which you may have read, PJ, which introduced the elite. It was called it was called something like "What's So Old Fashioned About Truth, Justice, in the American Way." I do remember that one. Yeah, which was kind of a reaction to the Authority. the The elite were written as a kind of thinly veiled parody of the Authority, and the idea that this is what you want from heroes, right? You want them to kill. You want them to be violent and judgmental. But I always remember that the intro to that book um, had a little thing from Joe Kelly, which I found was quite interesting. And he referenced a JLA arc he'd done because in his arc, which must have come out, bearing mind, we're probably talking like 2005, six sort of time, probably. Um, he had the League coming into conflict with the military again and kind of like questioning the military. And um, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and, and he said in the foreword to that book that that, story again in a kind of like a post you know 2006 is a very different political landscape to 1999 um he said they got flack from it from various right-wing groups they, they were you know kind of flagged as you know kind of hippie liberals kind of corrupting superman and turning him against america basically which he was quite proud of i remember there was around this time as well young justice did something similar where arrowette has a friend who gets shot and she goes after the killer just a normal guy with a gun and takes them down and she says in the actual comic you know guns are bad which was peter david saying guns are bad in the comic and they the letters that would then be in the next few issues in the letters page were people were right-wing gun nuts going well you've made your politics clear i'm dropping this book now and it's crazy to me <laughs> You know, these are superheroes. They're not killing people. They're not. They are going to be anti-gun. 
<laughs> I mean, Batman is the ultimate anti-gun hero, and I just don't get it when these how these gun nuts don't see that. It is weird, isn't it? Because like we've seen a lot of relaxing of the kind of killing thing, mm. particularly in recent years. And um, yeah, I mean, not to be like an, an old an old man about it, but like um, particularly in the movies. I mean, it's never very like. You know, we never see just Thor. Well, I guess we do see Thor beheg someone, actually. But yeah. we, you know, we never see Thor just kind of like hacking and slashing and blood kind of sp- spraying everywhere. But you know, it's like you know, Captain America kills people. Um, you know, um, Iron Man has probably killed a lot of people actually, and it's not presented in a graphic way, but it, it is kind of interesting to me that like pretty much across the board, unless they were being written as an anti-hero, it's just kind of accepted that superheroes don't kill. Yeah, it it that moment in Man of Steel where Superman snaps Zod's neck mm. is one of the worst things that has happened in cinema, certainly for superhero movies and for Superman in years, because that's how people then saw Superman. And Snyder says, oh, he had no choice. I'm like, he had plenty of choices in that moment. I know you had Zod trying to heat vision of family, but Superman could have gotten between them. He He's Superman. He has options. And Snyder also then pointed back to a comic where Superman did execute the Phantom Zone criminals, General Zod and the other two, and then felt really bad about it. But even that was a huge misstep for that character, and no one remembers it fondly. No. And you heard you had a lot of people after that after the Man of Skill kind of killing. Um kind of like retroactive like retro engineering the story from backwards to kind of justify it. Mm-hmm. Where they say that like, well now that Superman has killed, he now knows the importance of life, and that's why life is so sacred to him going forward. And I'm like, come on, folks. Stories we're not just discovering a story. You know, it's not like we're just kind of we 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 cut open the multiverse and we saw Man of Steel and then Zack Snyder just recorded it. Like these are human enterprises; they're made by creative teams. Someone yeah. wrote the story, so you can't just say that like he had no choice because you made that choice for him. And that is a statement in itself. Like having Superman kill on camera, no less, is a choice. It was a choice that was made, and it's um it's a it's a baffling one to me. I think there are ways of telling these stories to do it well, to put a character in that position. I think it's done very, very effectively in Garth Ennis's Punisher, Mm. where you have Punisher basically trying to kill a bad guy, but it's a bad guy that Daredevil is also aware of, and he knows they're going to confront each other, and he traps Daredevil, takes him down, and basically chains him up so that the only way Daredevil can stop the Punisher is by pulling the trigger on a gun the Punisher has put in his hand and killing the Punisher. Which I believe they directly reference in Daredevil Season 2 on Netflix. They do, indeed, yeah, in, in the TV show. That is, and Daredevil's one of those characters anyway who sort of straddles that line and is tortured by these things, and it did it didn't feel out of place for me that when he had no other way of saving this guy, Daredevil would pull that trigger. Mm. It didn't feel out of place to me. I didn't have a problem with Ennis doing that because of the way the story was told and the way Daredevil had been written up to that point. The difference with Man of Steel is there were other ways out of it and it just didn't feel in keeping with the character of Superman at all to me. No, I agree. And yeah, and it's not to say that there isn't a place for violence and and, yeah. and, and moida in, in, in comics. There have been. It's like, yeah, you know, 
you mentioned the Punisher, a character kind of drenched in blood. Mm. And it's like, yeah, that's the point of the character. We get it. You know, you can do a lot of complex stories with that. I don't think the point of Superman is to kill. No. It does kind of stand for something a little higher, I think, and, and, and kind of should be respected. Yeah, and it is one of the things that I'm glad the the new 52 got rid of was the in that point when superman had executed these kryptonian criminals because it just never felt right mm. to me that that had happened so one, one thing uh the, the counter thing i would say but or not quite the counter thing but an, an interesting point i do like in this about the involvement of the military actually i like a lot about this issue <laughs> is um is the idea that i do quite like how the tactics of the storyline play out, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I like the idea that even the even the entire force of the US military could not probably take down Superman in a in a direct fight. So you I do like that the military are fighting strategically. Yeah. You know, it's dirty tricks perhaps, but yeah, they are like, okay, well we we take out Green Lantern's inner ear, you know, we take out the Flash's leg. We you know, I, I, it does come across as quite a well-executed plan, as misguided as it is. Like, yeah. I like... You see it in a few things. I know, like, there was... I mean, The Boys, to some extent, again, by Garth Ennis. You see um, there was um, Stormwatch Team Achilles over at Wildstorm, which was entirely about, kind of, humans having to fight superheroes and how would you do it. And so I like it. I like it when a creative team gives some creative thought as to how you might overcome and best superpowers. So I like that actually. I think that's quite interesting. And uh, well, teams have been doing it with with Batman fighting superpowered enemies for years. So oh, excellent! Of course, of course, excellent point. He's basically the the master of it to the point where you know, annoyingly, once was good in Dark Knight Returns, but to have that rift on so many times since then. God, leave it alone. <laughs> yes, and you do start to get that slight problem where Batman goes from being an incredible planner to essentially being like Bat Jesus because yep. he he just can't be touched. Like you know, <laughs> the idea that he's so like, come on, give him some flaws. Like it's okay to be vulnerable. That's fine. <laughs> uh, but PJ, I mean, sorry, we we got a bit kind of big and philosoph uh, philosophical on that. But do you have any any anything you'd like to add? Any any thoughts here? Um, no, it's a great issue. Uh, I, I love everything about it. I think it's utterly superb. Yeah, it it really is. It really is. And and again, it's like, by when we say that this is like a superb, near-perfect issue, are we saying it's the greatest issue of any comic ever made? No, no, that's not the point. We're saying it's an issue that perfectly meets its ambitions. It's a story that, set, that achieves everything it's set out to do. So in many ways, it is a perfect story. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. It's. I'd recommend it. If you haven't read Morrison's JLA, I would maybe recommend these three issues as like the taster to get you into mm. it, I think. They'd be really good for that. Although I think if you're listening to us at this point, you probably have read most of Morrison's JLA. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... yeah. Even but if, if you've even got if some... friends you're looking to get into it. 
Yeah, I'm hoping that um, anybody who's gotten on board would not jump on at like uh, episode 47 <laughs> of our podcast. You know? I guess unless we're viewing it in reverse chronological order, I suppose. But yeah, no, it's a wonderful taster, actually. Um, I might say either this or, um, God, the, uh, the, the Angel storyline is great. Two-parter. Yeah, yeah. Although doesn't that feel like a different era now? It really does. Before the new members come in, you've got Electric Blue Superman, and Never yeah, forgot. it's weird it, though, isn't it? Because even just God, I mean, like what, like two years, two years time, the changes that have happened in the series, and even just the kind of like the feel of the series, like um, yeah, that's that you know, going back to like book one or New World Order or American Dreams, that felt much more nineties to me. In a way that these stories don't. This to me feels like one of those stories that, and there were a few, and they're all through the '90s. To be honest, this happened, which would sort of rail against what was happening with '90s comics, where this is like the Ultramarines of the '90s heroes coming in to take down the Justice League. Um, it's it's something that you saw in in Abusics Avengers. Did it? He 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 actively said, "I want to go back to classic superheroes. That how they should be done." Maximum Carnage way back in what 91 92 that was a reaction to what was going on with 90s characters with Spider-Man who was supposed to be the good you know the 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 good guy at Marvel who who was straight up just trying to save people being a hero mm-hmm. and having him fight these incredibly violent depraved villains and having to team up with both ends of the spectrum team up with Venom and Nightwatch while at the same time having Dagger and Captain America and Iron Fist and and sort of showing the difference there and how Spider-Man was actually going to come through the 90s and be the hero we needed. Oh, wait, PJ, speaking of the 90s, Nightwatch? Remind me who Nightwatch was? I think that was his name. I, I haven't read many comics that he was in, but he was one of those early 90s when Marvel brought out loads of new characters. He had a big helmet and large cape um god i think i had a trading card of nightwatch i had a trading card of him from the hildebrandt series from yeah, the god, god, yeah yeah it's weird it's weird isn't it the things you dig up yeah uh but he he was in maximum carnage um <laughs> was one of marvel's forgotten 90s heroes like you know up there with sleepwalker and cardiac <laughs> oh, <God>, sleepwalker <laughs> jeez louise Go, that's a deep cut. Hey, PJ, before you forget, speaking of deep cuts, here's a segue. Well done, nice. We've had another amazing piece of kind of JLA ephemera come through from Chris for Monica Murphy. Chris, always appreciated. This is delightful. Um, Which is another Morrison deep cut. Uh, Namely, the first appearance of... The White Martians. Yeah. Which takes all the way back to Justice League of America 71 from May 1969. Uh, and uh, yes, as Chris points out, uh, they are a much less lethal... Uh, lethal? Can't speak, sorry. They are much less deadly version of the White Martians than the ones we kind of um, enjoyed in uh, New World Order. Yeah, and Chris has attached some images of... Uh, Justice League of America 71 showing the white Martians and they they do just look like Jean colored in white 
Right. Uh, yes, uh, uh, white bald men with um, uh, kind of orange orange capes. Really, yeah. Um, it's it is kind of delightful, actually. Like I, I knew Morrison hadn't invented the White Martians. I knew they had appeared elsewhere beforehand, but I didn't realise how far back that went, what they looked like in those appearances, and it is delightful. I'm a big fan of that. And that they'd only appeared in two issues. So you get it's Justice League seventy one and then Justice League America hundred and forty four from July seventy seven, apparently. But yeah, that's the, some brilliantly dug up there, Chris. I love seeing these pages, and again, these are some issues I'm going to have to track down on Comicsology, I think. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild to me. I mean, I mean, I, I'm I'm looking at a panel now where uh, Jean is um, fighting with with you know kind of tridents against a a white Martian in the most just kind of glorious sixties outfit you could imagine. Mm. And um, I was just trying to think like, what was the power level of of Jean at that point in in comics? You know, this is this is very, this is a world away from well, basically everything we've seen in this series so far. It was a different era. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to read these. These look great. Yeah, well, uh, Chris, <laughs> thank you. Um, it is it is incredible you can remember these things. It is even more astonishing that you have the physical issues to prove it, which is wild. Um, but yeah, just again, everyone, go go track down Justice League of America 71 and then read it alongside... Um, uh, go uh, Read it alongside New World Order from 1997 just to see how comics have changed <laughs> um but pj sorry we've waffled on is there anything more to say do you think uh, no just you know we've got the third part of this story coming up and oh i'm excited howard porter's leaving us for a couple of issues uh, we have uh mark uh, sort of padger padgerillo mark padgerillo who's sort of a regular guest artist in this trade for i think any issues that Porter's away from for a little while. We get Pajarillo drawing instead, don't we? Yes, and a different take, but I also quite like um, quite yes. like his work. Yeah, it's weird, and I I like weird. <laughs> um, but PJ, is there anything you'd like to shout about? You know, promote sh- shamelessly shill anything like that? No, I'm good today. Good today. Well, um. Maybe then the only thing I will take the option to say is that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, my 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 other podcast, um, a show called Hate, is about to celebrate its 100th episode. And we are going to be doing a live episode on Thursday, the 6th of January. What? 7.30pm GMT. So that'll be over on twitch.tv forward slash Big Punch Studios. So if you'd, um, if you'd like to come along, I mean, it's going to be a bit of an experiment. We are, we are not... Twitchers, we're very, we're very square. So this will be a learning curve for us, but hmm. hopefully it will be entertaining. I think everyone should go and watch that and and just join in for the yucks. Enjoy them messing up. Really, that's what I'm. <laughs> for, it's, a, it's, a, it's a regular yuck fest uh, for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I guess I guess then PJ, please feel free to interject and stop me if I've got this wrong. But assuming. We've reached the end of the road here. No, okay, he hasn't, he hasn't said we, anything. We need to we need to thank uh, Gavin Mitchell for doing our incredible cover artwork, and uh, Elliot Red for composing and performing our superb theme tune, Justice. God, you you beat me to it. I, I did I, beat you I, to it. I don't I don't know what to believe anymore. Um, <laughs> but yeah, well, in which case, PJ, it's been an absolute delight. I've very much enjoyed this. Um, 
Would you like to, in your own unique fashion, which is completely on time and we didn't miss the deadline, everything's fine, would you like to see us off? I would. In the words of the great Michael Ball, Happy New Year. 